Joining me this morning is an award-winning educator, researcher, and writer in the field of brain development and music learning. She is internationally recognized for her unique work in translating the scientific research of neuroscientists and psychologists to the everyday parent, teacher, and student. She has interviewed over 100 neuroscientists and psychologists about music learning and brain development. She has written a book to be released in September called The Music Advantage, Dr. Anita Collins, thank you for joining me this morning to have a chat about your amazing work. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so please tell me about yourself and how you got started in your field of expertise. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> how long have we got? Um, I'm, to track it backwards a tiny bit, I was a musician first, a classically trained clarinet player, and then made a decision to become an educator. Uh, instead of following sort of an orchestral track career um, and did lots of teaching and things like that but ended up also besides teaching high schoolers who I love high school teenagers are great um, I ended up going to uh, teach at a university and teach pre-service teachers so I was a teacher educator at the University of Canberra and at the time you didn't have to have a PhD to work in the university and while I was there, the rules sort of changed. And they said, look, you need to, to start on that journey to having a PhD. So I searched, I was given two pieces of advice. And one was um, pick something that's been researched to the nth degree. Then we know everything about it. We couldn't learn anything more. And just put your lens as a person over the top and just write a PhD out of that. And then the second piece of um, advice was pick something at the start that you'll love just as much at the end and I decided I was more excited by the second piece of advice of course, because I, I wanted I'd always wanted to do a PhD but I wanted to make a difference with it it didn't make any sense for me to kind of get it like a driver's license to do a test and say yes now you can drive that that didn't make sense to me I really wanted to make a difference with the work that I was doing. So I spent nine months just reading everything, just immersing myself in everything, waiting for that one moment when I would go, that's it, that's what it is. I was waiting for that lightning to strike. And anyone who's ever done this process will know that you get disheartened a lot. <laughs> it's like, how yeah. long is it gonna take? Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, and then it happened in a very strange way. I read an article written by someone who does similar work to me was one of the pioneers, but he was interviewing four neuroscientists. And he posed the question right at the end of the article. He said, um, what do you think music educators should know about the work that you do and what you found? And I was reading and reading and reading and reading. And by the end, I was furious. I was just like, I don't need to know all that, right. but I need to know this, 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 and this. And I thought, I didn't think it, I thought it would be me going, oh, I'm falling in love with something, but it was actually me being annoyed by something and furious that made me go, this is the spot that I should, I should try and make a difference for music teachers everywhere. And it stayed true to that. I've, I, not one day since that point have I thought, now nah, this is not really interesting anymore. It's still fascinating to me. So I did my PhD. I then got the opportunity to go and travel overseas. And I went and spent time, significant time in the labs. So I would just sit there and I would learn from everybody. I would learn from the professor right down to the research tech. Often they had more information than the professor did. 
Um, and I'd watch thing. I'd watch kids having um, experiments done. I would do as many experiments myself that they would let me do. Uh, and I got to do that. Then I got to do it again. I got a second trip out of that one. And then I just decided that there was no point in me knowing and loving all this research without sharing it. So I took a very big leap and made a decision that that was going to be the work I would do for the next sort of five to 10 years. And this is where I'm at. Amazing. Amazing. Often, well, it's actually true that the best teachers are brilliant students, mm. of course. So no, that's incredible. And uh, what brought us here is your amazing TEDx talk. Um, actually, that uh, made me want to dive deeper and understand more. I've always, uh, I've always knew that uh, you know playing any kind of instrument is beneficial, has many benefits um, mm. uh, for your development, brain development, co cognitive function, etc. But uh, after watching your talk, it really uh, got my interest because I'm a parent as well to a beautiful girl. Oh, yeah. And uh, I obviously want to learn as much as I can to give her the best possible uh, options and resources to maximize her potential. Mm. So um, uh, let's talk about how you got involved with the TEDx um, to begin with. How, how did you get to do that talk? Uh, it's really, it, first of all, it's really, it will never get old and I'll never get unhappy with hearing feedback about that because as an educator, I knew the power of TED as a brand and the TEDx and the TED talk model. And I'd been to a few myself and I sat there going, how do you make a molecular whatever sound exciting? And then the next person is a psychological researcher. Like, how do you do that? So I was, I was fascinated by the process. So we'll get onto that. Um, the first thing that happened, again, I have a lot of serendipitous things that happen. And I look back and go, oh, that was pretty lucky. Um, I was... Just at the end of my, I think I'd finished my PhD and there's a certain, um, I don't know, some people call it loss, some people call it grief, some people call it just not knowing what to do with yourself because you've held on to this project like a baby for so long and it's so, so much of yourself goes into it. So when you finish, while you've got the doctor after your name and the floppy hat and things like that, it's, you've got to find a new purpose. So... I was at university and in all honesty, this is what happened. I was avoiding doing my marking. I was just going, I don't want to mark my students' assignments. And I found the TED Education, um, which is another branch of TED. Um, they're sort of, they have a, a, anyone can pitch an idea to them. And I was avoiding things. So I went, oh, I'll just write down an idea. Uh, and it came, it first started as, um, and a little film for teenagers to say, this is what's happening in your brain when you practice. And I thought that'll be beneficial, that'll be helpful. Wrote it down, went back to cleaning things, avoiding my marking. Um, the long story short was the film got made and it got made into the, the little animation that so many people know with the little double bass player. Um, That's the original film. I've seen that as well. That's the Ted Education. Yeah, that was a brilliant uh, short film. Yeah. yeah, and it was really <laughs> it's funny because as an American narrator, a lot of people um, came on and said, it's not your voice, it's some American talking. Of course, like, yes, it's, it's not your you voice. Do. It's a man speaking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. That's my after anyway. hours voice. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many parts of that experience that were wildly lucky. Um, first of all, I had a, like, 
I didn't realise, but they get 350 pitches a week and they choose five people to interview and they're in New York and we were lucky to find a time and, and we did an interview and they only pick, out of those five, they only pick one person to go forward. Oh, wow. So first yeah. of all, I'm like, how lucky was I? I didn't know all this till afterwards. Um, then we were, it only took four months to do when it usually takes nine. And then it got released and I went, oh, that's nice. Something's out in the world. And then it went crazy. 10 and million was, up to still, now or something shared, like that, yeah. Oh, it shared so much. And I'm so, yeah. I'm just so pleased that that was the start of, of the research getting out there. And then from that came the invitation to do a TED talk in Canberra or TEDx talk. And what was fascinating to me is I knew the power of TED and I knew the power of finding your idea worth spreading. And that was the fact that I knew that. So my cohort, I didn't feel like many others really understood how many people were going to watch what they said and how many people were going to, it was how powerful it could be. So I felt an enormous amount of pressure to find my idea worth sharing. And that pressure got me to the point, along with you get a speaking coach and she was phenomenal. I still hear her voice in my head when I'm getting ready to present and when she keeps constantly saying, who are you? What are you trying to do? Where's your voice? And that's just what she said. And it came to the point of doing this talk that said, well, what would be the implications if every child had music education from birth? And then I just followed that idea through and it's kept going. Brilliant. It's a great talk. I love it. I just wish that it uh, went for a lot longer than that. (laughs) 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 But it's brilliant. But uh, let's dig a little deeper in in your work and and what you do currently now, because I've I've gone, I obviously uh, went through all the resources that I could. Um, not all of it. I'm, I'm sure there's a ton of stuff out there. You're involved into the ABC uh, network as well with uh, a, a program that was really successful in Australia here and um, was accepted uh, really well. And uh, also there's uh, quite a lot of projects going through your site. You're involved in tremendous amount of projects, great projects. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's... Um there's a lot of parts to what I do mainly because I've, I've found that there are many different audiences and part of what I enjoy doing is understanding how to share the same material but in a way that resonates with whatever audience I'm going to. So I do anything from um, the pretty heavy-duty consulting where I go and help state governments to design a music education strategy um, down to individual schools where the principal has me come in, you know, four times a year to work with her staff because she wants a music program, but she doesn't think it should just be on its own. She believes it should be across the school. So we're transforming the school um, across with using music and using sort of my presence to keep coming in and to keep helping them from wherever they are. Just start to build and build and build. And that's, that's incredibly fulfilling work. Um, I do work with my title of my PhD was Bigger Better Brains and that's because I kept scribbling and going musicians brains are bigger musicians brains are better and I thought oh I'll just call my thesis that and that's morphed into um, a global community of educators all around the world who basically I take all the research figure out how to share it in lots and lots of different ways that then all of the community can share on so whether they're social media videos or posts or explaining different bits of the research, interviews as much as I can do. Um, 
with a way of saying, here's the research and here's how to share it, but also let me help you understand how research itself works and how we can take it from the lab to the classroom or to the rehearsal room and how we should be careful, what we should be really careful about. Um, trying to think of all the things I do. <laughs> there is quite that's a few, but what, what is the most important project to you right now that you're working on? The, the one that's close to your heart and most important to you? Um, I hate favourites, <laughs> but I'll tell, you, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a couple and I'll tell you what part of it is important to me. And it all feels in a much bigger picture, but at the moment um, it's like those pictures that are, if you back away from, you can see the whole picture, but at the moment I'm working on the little parts. Um, the school that I've just talked about that I work with and I go and visit them four times a year and I um, have done that for three years now, that is very rewarding from a, a human development point of view because I'm watching a school evolve with my help, but now it's almost at the point where they don't need my help. And that, as for me as an educator, is my vision. I should do such a good job that they don't need me anymore. Brilliant. And that's the ultimate goal, of course, yeah, for every teacher. Think, yeah. It's quite hard to be so needed and valued but then to be able to get to the point of saying, but you don't need, I'm working to the point where you don't need me. And that's a really interesting relationship to have with an entire staff. And that doesn't, it's not just the staff. There's the kids know me now too. There's some parents that know me. So it's, a, I've been brought into a community. Yeah. Um, and I can see how that model can, with all its ups and downs, because these things are never a straight line, can be moved all around the country. So that's what's exciting to me is I'm seeing one school grow, but I can see that hundreds, thousands of schools could grow in this way um, and just testing out the model of how that could happen. There's something that's about to be released as well as my book, which was, as anyone who then reads it, I had trouble reading when I was younger and I still have trouble reading and I have even more trouble writing. So to be able to say, not only can I write a thesis, but I can write a book that people might enjoy reading is is just honestly filling a hole in me that started super early on when I didn't think I was a good learner. I thought I was dumb. I thought I was down the bottom of the, the, the sort of class, but I wasn't. I just learned a little bit differently and I found all these different ways to, to kind of get around that and to continue to learn. But everything I produced is proving to me that I can still have that skill. Amazing. And That's what makes you an amazing teacher as well, I believe, <laughs> in, in my opinion. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really, I see kids that, not only kids that struggle, but also kids that fly, but I also see kids that are hiding things. And I understand because I was a great hider. I could hide that I couldn't read. Um, so I, I know how to get next to them and sit down and, and make it safe for them to, to sort of talk about that. But there's a report coming out which, if it's done right, <laughs> it has the potential <laughs> to change the nature of music education in Australia. And it's about looking at the problem in a whole different way, bringing so many different minds to it, not just music teachers, if anything, bringing people from outside and saying, here's our really complex problem. How do we do systemic change in Australia that will result in what I said in my TEDx talk? It will be universal music education for every child. How's that going to change Australia? And that project, the Tony Foundation project, is very close to my heart because, for me, it has the most possibility of changing things for everyone everywhere 
Um, so I guess those are the two that resonate in my heart, but the Bigger Better Brains community of teachers, and they are everywhere, just, I don't know, fill my heart. They're great. Even one of them today had a chat to me and she said, you talked to me six months ago and, and sort of said, try these couple of things for future study and I'm now enrolled in this course with this mentor um, and I'm going to do this. And it's like, ah, oh, yes. Yeah. I'm so excited about people finding their place to learn and finding what's right for them. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that's amazing. And um, I, I also, I, it was really difficult for me growing up um, learning and picking up things and, and doing really well at school, but it wasn't, a lot of the issues weren't, weren't really um, uh, my issues. There was just no other platform to suit me to create a better environment for me to learn and to pick up things because I needed a particular way to digest information or to, to understand a pathway or to, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm really hands-on as well. I'm very practical mm. with everything and yeah. a very visual person. So, um, and uh, growing up and, and getting into the education space myself, uh, I've been mm. involved in education for about 15 years now, well over 15 years actually, and um, ran and operated my own uh, registered training organization here for almost 10 years in WA. Successfully, you put thousands of people through and I think the greatest success is that in the points that you explained before is that because you struggled learning because the curriculum and the education system is um, is set up to in a way it, it's a model that um, everyone has to be part of it's not really set up to um, allow teachers and people to build and develop their intuitive senses um, to, uh, you know, customize certain things and, and change certain um, uh, things to suit the individual. And I think mm. that's, that's where it all falls apart. But speaking of that, um, I mean, the, the schooling and education system as it is and how it could be improved, it's not even an argument now. What ideas and visions do you have um, that could be implemented easy um, mm. for the future of education? For the future of education, that's, that's a big one. I'll go for music education first and then I'll go to education because... The future of music education. Music, yeah, but I would, <laughs> I would say there's, it's inherent in that other part as well. And, yeah. I, and for me... Being part of, when I did teacher education, I wasn't just teaching music. Because I was there for such a long time, I got to teach all of the generalist subjects. So, you know, here's a unit on behaviour management, off you go. Here's a unit on assessment, off you go. So the concept of what it means to produce, grow, enhance, whatever word you want to use, a teacher, comes into that question. But I'll start with music. Um, for me, it would probably start in early childhood and primary school, so preschool through to the end of our primary school. And just having it so that kids had music every single day. That was age appropriate to them. Whether it means starting with um, 10 minutes for our kindy ones and twos with singing and beat keeping, which will prime their brain for their literacy block, which usually comes first. That's where we start. In year three and four, if it then moves on to making sure that they're on complex instruments or instruments that require lots of discipline, Big, you know, group learning in groups as well as learning individually, learning how to read notation, because that is important. 
Um, and then also having them singing as well, moving into year five and six. So, but the simple idea is music every single day. And music that's the every single day. Music every single day, even if it's five to 10 minutes. Even if we, we do it with exercise. We often go first thing every day, kids out around the playground, up you come. We've warmed their body up, There's their bodies up. What have we done for this? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, I will, I get like, I will actually make sure that we talk about the fact that warming up our bodies and that sort of physical activity does do great things for our brains. Yeah. But what if we supercharge that with the musical part that we now know that really helps so that by the time they start learning, they are so ready physically and um, cognitively to do that learning. Then to, really to me, it can't be a bad thing at all. What has to come with that is teacher education. And I don't think we can do it in universities enough. We need to do it when teachers are in service, not pre-service. Yeah. Um, and it needs to be an ongoing thing. It has to be a school-wide thing. So everyone gets in and does it together. It's not just the purview of the music teacher or the designated person who does music. So for music education, that would be my first step. And that takes a lot to implement. But in many cases, just start small. Just start with K1 and 2 or P1 yeah. and 2. We talk about it. And then, and then move on from there. And do that really Whenever, well and then move yeah. on to... And you create stage. need. Yeah, you create need as well as to say, not generalist, that's the other thing that from teacher education I learned is we've got this, many of our states have a system that says a generalist teacher should be able to teach music, drama, dance, visual arts and media arts. I don't know a specialist that can teach all of those. Why on earth are we asking a generalist to do it? So I think we're setting them up for failure. I don't like that. And I used to watch on my teach, a lot of my teachers go out and go, you're kind of ready, but if stuff gets in the way or if you go into a school that has no support whatsoever, you're going to fall easy in the first sort of six months. So I think it's about changing cultures in schools and changing the education in schools. And the thing is, once you do it once and you upskill a whole generation of teachers, it will flow on on its own. We've just yeah. got to change this particular bit you just have to start somewhere Sorry. you just have to start somewhere it's yeah and let's start with the kids who are most happy to sing most happy to do beat keeping and it will actually have the most cognitive benefit from the beginning it's it's a really easy formula to me um, it just has to get principles on side really because they're the ones that make those decisions to so say any kind of music any any kind of music activity whether it's singing or playing an instrument or um or just anything or listening to music as well ah. <laughs> so to get that's a very good question to get the cognitive development that that so much of my work revolves around it has to have certain ingredients it's not just anything it's not just music in the playground it's not just singing the national anthem out of tune that's not music education, that's a musical experience and that does not do what we need it to do for the brain. It has to be sequential, which means, and methodologies, particularly in young ages, have very clear sequences, what you teach first, what you teach second, what you teach third. It has to be ongoing, has to be every day or at least once a week. Um, it has to involve doing things in a group as well as doing things individually on a very small group. So learning an instrument in a small group is the way to go. It has to go for years. It has to go for somewhere between three to seven years. 
And people are like, oh, my God, that's such a long time. But then we do maths for seven yeah, years. Absolutely. We do literacy for seven years. And these seven years or however long it has to be start before sort of proper primary school. They actually start right down in preschool or also down in, in the very much younger years as well. And it's just age-appropriate, sequential, ongoing music education, not musical experience that does not, it does different things and great things for social connection, but doesn't have the cognitive um, benefits that we know at the moment. Of course, no, you, you, you nailed it there. It's uh, uh, before we look, we look, we take care of our body and our health and well-being by exercising and promoting exercise and wellness and, and fitness, etc. And, and uh, I think that's more important as well to invest in our brain development and uh, in, in our children, uh, most importantly. But to, so to do it every day. So every day, let's just uh, give me an example of what would be a perfect model for schools to implement on a daily basis that is is not going to be it, it can be very doable and actionable and implemented easily uh for yeah. children because that's that's i i believe it's all about um um, ha having a plan that's that's easy to roll out is the key to success um, and people will mm. take it um uh, we will welcome that um, much easier of course yeah so yeah, and i and i agree yeah i agree it's about where do we start and what's a, the smallest most impactful thing we can do um that then rolls on to yeah other things we can do so if i talk about um kindy one and two or prep one and two or whichever word you use for the lower grade um it's nine o'clock it's all the kids are at the door it's everybody's walking into the beat everyone's clapping the beat to their desk and everyone's coming into a circle still keeping the beat now if anyone's met a five-year-old that is so hard to do <laughs> to keep that concentration going yeah. to, and walk around in time so the main thing the teacher's got to focus on is actually not just the kids walking around doing this it's actually keeping that steady beat and we now know that the ability to clap a steady beat is a outward indication of an inward connectivity that means these kids have brains that are connected enough to learn how to read so it's actually a precursor to wow. that that connectivity yeah so you could tell i could watch kids i do this all the time and i go that one's struggling to read that one's struggling to read that one's struggling. and i don't know these children and the teacher goes oh magic and it's like no science because <laughs> hell <laughs> You can tell if, if they can't do that, the motor control, the visual control, the auditory control is not connected well enough to then take on that, that next sort of step of all sorts of learning, but reading is one of the best indicators of it. Right. So, so walking in and you have to focus on it for a year to 18 months with some kids and then suddenly it'll all happen and it's great. You just have to watch really carefully. Um, and then they'll come and they might sit around in a circle. Again, very tricky idea for five-year-olds to do. Often we have circle mats in those sorts of classrooms. They sit down, they, they um, sit down uh, sort of in that circle and then the teacher will go repeat after me and they might do, do a rhythm and the kids will clap back that rhythm. And we'll do a whole bunch of rhythm, echo and response. Again, it's about listening and then it's about motor control. Um, then if they're getting really good, you might get up to say year two, you might say, the child next to you, you can do a pattern and we'll all repeat you. And then the next child can do a pattern and you, we can all repeat. 
that's very hard because the child has to be very independent and feel that pulse, that beat in their body yeah. and then make up something because that's the other thing. Usually what happens is they go, oh, I can't think of anything and they can't think of what to do. So that's, and again, this is only three or four minutes we're going now. And then it might be, well, our nursery rhyme of the week is um, hickory dickory dock. So the teacher might start by going hickory dickory dock. I must run up the clock and all the kids would sing back to her and you're aiming for the kids to sing in tune, which again, right. kindy mm-hmm. one and two, cannot do. <laughs> <laughs> as long as their voice is going up, you're on a win. And if their voice comes down when the notes go down, that's what we're expecting at that age. Again, we're at like minute number six or seven um, and you might sing the song through once with actions and then you might sing the song through once with eyes closed so that they're using their ears. And then you might sing once when kids get to dance around and there's your 10 minutes and they're ready to go into their lesson. And you've covered all of these really vital things. Um, And if you do the same song all week long, the kids know the song's coming. So they keep just repeating and repeating. Music learning is a lot about rote and we don't have a lot of rote learning anymore. So that's sort of why we need it so much because we don't, our brains learn through rote and it's okay to have rote in music learning because that's just a reinforcement of these very complex ideas and concepts you have to do. Brilliant. Is there oh, any schools? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love yeah. it. I love it. That, that's, uh, that, that's anyone can do that really. Yeah. It's, it's easy. Um, any schools right now in Australia that are actually deploying a similar system or a program like that? Is there? Yeah, I'm working with, yeah, I'd say there's lots of schools that are doing it. The ones I'm most excited by are not just individual schools, but systems. So a system, there's different versions of systems in Australia, but I'm working with um, the whole Catholic diocese in Parramatta, which is huge and has a really large number of schools. And they're doing exactly that led by people in their department with my help as well. They're doing it with all of their kindy one and two teachers and they're sending in videos and they're having, you know, sort of um, PD all the way through the year when they can. They're even doing it now during COVID. Um, We're watching the kids. We're watching all sorts of things. So it's just the most amazing. And again, scalable to another, say, a state system or a different Catholic um, system as well. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. How long have you been doing that for? When did that you start? That project's probably been 18 months. Okay. Oh, it might have been longer. Maybe almost have been two years. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, so they're, and they're now moving up into their secondary school teachers as well. So they're, they're making really sustainable change in a whole enormous area for, you know, a huge number of schools. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so let's talk about your book, the Music mm-hmm. Advantage, which I pre-ordered, by the way, yesterday. Thank you. Because I did a little, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did a little digging and uh, checked out your pages and, and uh, did a little reading and I'll be really interested to uh, to get that book and read it. I, I can't wait. Well, so um, let's talk about um, first, what inspired you to write that book? Um. I was asked to, <laughs> but that's all inspiration. Um, again, I've always wanted to write a book 
to share this information. And as a non, non, I, was, I often call myself a non-reader and a non-writer. I'm not, but I, it's just, I work very hard at it because it's not the easiest skill in the world for me. But after, it was the Monday morning after the first episode of Don't Stop the Music and I got an email from Alan and Unwin and they said, oh, we heard you on the radio this morning, very interested to talk further. And I, I was just, oh my God, <laughs> I was yeah. so excited. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so then the process went through, we did a proposal. I had written a small book that I'd published myself called The Lullaby Effect, which had come out of a podcast series I did with a, a radio station in Sydney. But I did it as I, I learned from another writer. She said, do a book to teach yourself how to write. <laughs> and I went, okay, I'll set myself a project. And before that, you've got to remember, I did 12 years of academic writing, just very dry, serious, very formulaic in the way that yeah. it's, it's done, which is, I think, I didn't like PhD, it. PhD, typical. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like I understand why it's in the way it is, but it just didn't fit. And I think that's why I went and did the TED stuff, in all honesty. It's like I needed a creative outlet yeah. because I couldn't, I couldn't cope with this. It feels like a straight jacket that you're in, but it has to be done that way and I appreciate it. Um, so I wrote this very short book. And I sent it to a friend and he wrote back and he very subtly said, hmm, there's not very much of you in this. And he then he said, yeah, it was a two-line email and he basically said, how about trying like, to write like you speak? I went, okay, I'll try that. And as soon as I did that, the words just fell out of me and I wrote it in a day and a half and it was like, oh, my God. You so, wrote the um, book in a day and a half? I wrote the little book in a day and a ah, half. The other I one was... I wrote in nine months. <laughs> it took a long time. Um, but the last bit I wrote, super quick, it was amazing. So basically they'd asked me to write this book and I already kind of had this, this idea of what my style that's non-academic would be. And it is, it's how I talk, but it's also about sharing stories, the power of a story to illuminate something to illuminate an issue to illuminate a phenomenon to to do something and so I let myself be free to tell all of my stories and I found that I'd start every um every chapter starts kind of with a conversation I've had with someone and or a story I've heard or something I've observed and then I kind of just weave in all the science to explain what I see and to me that's a way of making the science real because it's applicable straight away to the kids that we know or ourselves as children or our own children. So that's kind of how the, the book came about and then just came up with the structure and then I just write, I gave myself three hours to write 3,000 words and that was my chapter and I just blocked that out and I just write. Brilliant. How long it took you all up, the project from start to finish? I think it took me 10 months to write it. Um, but I had a big break in the middle, so. As well, that's know. brilliant. So you're really dedicated to, to that book yeah. and, um, yeah, excellent, excellent. So this book is uh, designed, any, anyone can read it. Everyone can read it. Yeah. You don't need to have a PhD or you don't need to understand science to a deeper level or a higher yeah. level or, or physics or anything like that. Anyone can pick up that book and enjoy reading it. And who is it most beneficial to? I think the first group it's beneficial for are parents. So to help them understand 
what they're seeing as the experience for their children um, or alternatively what the experience is for the teacher. Um, but also bringing in that science behind it. And it's not just saying research has found or, you know, we studies say this many percentage. It's about here's the intricate, this is how inhibitory control works and this is how it looks like on a child who's this old because it's different. Inhibitory control in a 17-year-old is totally different to a 7-year-old. So my hope is firstly parents will read it and they'll start to not only see their own children at the particular age they're at, but maybe themselves um, and understand and not be turned off by the science. It's really funny. The first person to read it after it was all finished was my mum, who was a reading teacher. And she got to the end of it the other day and she said, oh, it was actually enjoyable. I said, thanks, mum. <laughs> she said, no, no, I thought I was going to be hit with lots of science. But I knew a lot more at the end of the book than I did at the start, but I didn't realise I was learning it. And I thought that's exactly the experience I wanted you to have, really? which was learning by stealth or learning by story. I don't care how yeah. we put it. Um, yeah, so it just, it, it sort of weaves those together. I think grandparents will love it too. I've already heard from a few grandparents who are like, I'm going to read this and then I'm going to go and talk to my child because they haven't got their child in music. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think teachers will enjoy it too, particularly generalist primary and early childhood teachers. Um, although I do absolutely cater for all the secondary teachers too, just to explain some behaviours with kids, particularly with the way they interact with sound. Um, sometimes I can watch a kid and I know exactly what's happening in their head when they're processing sound, but the generalist teacher goes, oh, he just can't pay attention or he just keeps hitting the person next to him. And it's like, yeah, but this is what's happening inside his head and he's, he's lashing out because he can't cope with the auditory overload. And as soon as you explain it like that, then the teacher can go, oh, well, I can make changes that can help that. So it's empowering them to, to, do, to teach differently and to view kids differently as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to understand what's going on and um, how to deal with it and manage it and change things around to, um, to help the children. That's amazing. I'll, I'll definitely be reading it. Um, where is the best place to – I've ordered your book from your website, which is anitacollinsmusic.com. Is it .au as well? I don't remember. No, .com. It's just .com. <laughs> I should yeah. know, but .com. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, so uh, people and, and whoever is watching um, uh, this uh, podcast here can order the book from anitacollins.com. And mm -hmm. is it anywhere else? Is it going to be on uh, Amazon and Kindle and – yeah, Kindle. I know it's in Dimix. I know that iTunes. it's in yep. yep, I know there's going to be an ebook uh, as well as a paper book. And I know for those, if anyone's watching overseas, I know that we're just finishing off all the contracts for overseas as well. And there will be an audio book as well, which will be, I would oh, prefer brilliant. an audio book as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that'll be a little while to come out. But yeah, there's been huge interest. Um, in the book and people being able to see that it will translate across countries, which for me is, while it's very Australian-centric, um, I think it's, it's a universal experience that they're starting to see. Brilliant, brilliant. Congratulations and well done. And I can't wait to get the book and read it. Um, thank you. Thank you. So I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. What is your end game and what impact do you want to have on the world? My end game, at least in Australia, but I, I would like it all over the world, is universal music education for every child. 
in a, in a meaningful and cognitively developmental kind of way. And what was the second half of the question? What impact do you want to have on the world? What the impact I want to have is that more kids are cognitively ready for all of the demands that are in their education, whether that just be reading through to, you know, astrophysics, but that we have given them every cognitive um, benefit that we possibly can through music so that they can go off and do whatever they want to, not just professionally, but they can have um, good relationships. They can have, um, make good health choices for themselves. They can make good decisions for themselves. And to me, fundamentally, if we enhance the next generation, that enhances whatever country we're in, whether it be economically, from a health perspective, um, from a social justice perspective, it's going to enhance everything. And what's, what I am, I will probably never say in my lifetime, but I think I will know is going to happen is that the, what's, what the final outcome is could never, ever be anticipated because we don't really know exactly what music does. We just know that it does so many wonderful things. So the end point, we don't know, and I won't know, and I probably won't see, but I will know that I've helped to put the wheels in place to make that happen. Amazing, amazing. Dr. Renita, thank you so much for joining me this morning to have a chat about all your amazing work, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you one day when all these restrictions are over. And, uh, and I really hope that as soon as uh, all the borders open again, that you make it to WA here and, um, yeah. you know, and, and roll your amazing work to Western Australia as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really look forward to coming back as soon as I can. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you so much and have an amazing day. Thank you. Too.